Section 12 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. Consul D. fulfills the duties of two consulates, the Austrian and the French. From both these offices he derives no benefit but the honor. By some people this honor would be highly valued, but many would rate it nothing at all. This family, however, seems to have a great idea of honor, for the consul's office is hereditary, and I found the son of the present dignitary already looking forward to filling his place. In the evening I was present at a real oriental entertainment in the house of this friendly family. Mats, carpets, and pillows were spread out on the terrace of this house, and a very low table placed in the centre. Round this the family sat, or rather reclined, cross-legged. I was accommodated with a chair somewhat higher than the table. Beside my plate and that of the consul were laid a knife and fork, that appeared to have been hunted out from some lumber-chest. The rest ate with a species of natural knife and fork, namely the fingers. The dishes were not at all to my taste. I had still too much of the European about me, and too little appetite to be able to endure what these good people seemed to consider immense delicacies. The first dish appeared in the form of a delicate pilau, composed of mutton, cucumbers, and a quantity of spice, which rendered it more unpalatable to me than common pilau. Then followed sliced cucumbers sprinkled with salt, but as the chief ingredients, vinegar and oil, were entirely wanting, I was obliged to force down the cucumber as best I could. Next came rice milk, so strongly flavored with attar of roses that the smell alone was more than enough for me. And now, at length, the last course was put on the table. Stale cheese made of ewe's milk, little unpeeled gherkins, which my entertainers coolly discussed, rind and all, and burnt hazelnuts. The bread, which is flat like pancakes, is not baked in ovens, but laid on metal plates or hot stones, and turned when one side is sufficiently done. It tastes better than I should have expected. Our conversation during dinner was most interesting. Some of the family spoke a little Italian, but this was pronounced with such a strong Greek accent that I was obliged to guess at the greater portion of what was said. No doubt they had to do the same with me. The worthy consul, indeed, affirmed that he knew French very well, but for this evening at least his memory seemed to have given him the slip. Much was spoken and little understood. The same thing is often said to be the case in learned societies, so it was not of much consequence. There are many different kinds of cucumber in Syria, where they are a favorite dish with rich and poor. I found numerous varieties, but none that I found superior to our German one. Another favorite fruit is the watermelon, here called bastek. These I also found neither large in size nor better flavored than the melons I had eaten in southern Hungary. The consul's house seems sufficiently large, but the architectural arrangement is so irregular that the extended area contains but few rooms and very little comfort. The apartments are lofty and large, extremely ill-furnished, and not kept in the best possible order. I slept in the apartment of the married daughter, but had it not been for the bed standing round, I should rather have looked upon it as an old store-closet than a lady's sleeping-room. May 28th. 
At five o'clock in the morning Mr. Bartlett's servant came to fetch me away, as we were at once to continue our journey. I betook myself to the house of the English consul, where I found neither a horse nor anything else prepared for our departure. It is necessary to look calmly upon these irregularities here in the East, where it is esteemed a fortunate occurrence if the horses and mukers, as the drivers of horses and donkeys are called, are only a few hours behind their time. Thus our horses made their appearance at half-past five instead of at four, the hour for which they had been ordered. Our baggage was securely fixed, for we left the greater portion of our effects at Joppa, and took with us only what was indispensably necessary. As the clock struck six we rode out of the gate of Joppa, and immediately afterwards reached a large well with a marble basin. Near places of this description a great number of people are always congregated, and more women and girls are seen than appear elsewhere. The dress of females belonging to the lower orders consists of a long blue garment fastened round the throat, and reaching below the ankle. They completely cover the head and face, frequently without even leaving openings for the eyes. Some females, on the other hand, go abroad with their faces totally uncovered. These are, however, exceptional cases. The women carry their water-pitchers on their head or shoulder, as their ancestors have done for thousands of years, in the manner we find represented in the oldest pictures. But unfortunately I could discover neither grace in their gait, the dignity in their movements, nor the physical beauty in their appearance that I had been led to expect. On the contrary, I found squalor and poverty more prevalent than I had thought possible. We rode on amid the gardens, every moment meeting a little caravan of camels. Immediately beyond the gardens we descried the fruitful valley of Sharon, extending more than eight miles in length, and to a still greater distance in breadth. Here and there we find villages built on hills, and the whole presents the appearance of an extremely fertile and well-populated region. In all directions we saw large herds of sheep and goats, the latter generally of a black or brown color, with long, pendant ears. The foreground of the picture is formed by the Judean mountains, a range apparently composed of a number of barren rocks. A ride of two hours through this plain, which is less sandy than the immediate neighborhood of Joppa, brought us to a mosque, where we made halt for a quarter of an hour and ate our breakfast, consisting of some hard-boiled eggs, a piece of bread, and a draught of lukewarm water from the cistern. Our poor beasts fared even worse than ourselves. They received nothing but water. On leaving this place to resume our journey across the plain, we not only suffered dreadfully from the heat, which had reached thirty degrees reamer, but were further persecuted by a species of minute gnats, which hovered round us in large swarms, crept into our noses and ears, and annoyed us in such a manner that it required the utmost of our patience and determination to prevent us from turning back at once. Fortunately, we only met with these tormentors in those parts where the corn had been cut and was still in the fields. They are not much larger than a pin's head, and look more like flies than gnats. They are always met with in great swarms, and sting so sharply that they frequently raise large boils. The vegetation was, at this season, already in so forward a state that we frequently passed stubble fields, and found that the wheat in several cases had already been gathered up. Throughout the whole of Syria, and in that part of Egypt whither my journey afterwards led me, I never once saw corn or vegetables, wood or stores, carried in wagons. 
They were invariably borne by horses or asses. In Syria I could understand the reason of this proceeding. With the exception, perhaps, of the eight or ten miles across the valley of Sharon, the road is too stony and uneven to admit the passage of the lightest and smallest carts. In Egypt, however, this is not the case, and yet wagons have not been introduced. A most comical effect was produced when we met long processions of small donkeys, so completely laden with corn that neither their heads nor their feet remained visible. The sheaves seemed to be moving spontaneously, or to be propelled by the power of steam. Frequently, after a train of this kind has passed, lofty gray heads appear, surrounded by a load piled up to so great a height, that one would suppose large corn-wagons were approaching rather than the ship of the desert, the camel. The traveller's attention is continually attracted to some novel and curious object totally dissimilar to anything he has seen at home. Towards ten o'clock we arrived at Ramla, a place situate on a little hill and discernible from a great distance. Before reaching the town we had to pass through an olive wood. Leaving our horses beneath a shady tree, we entered the coppice on the right. A walk of about a quarter of a mile brought us to the Tower of the Forty Martyrs, which was converted into a church during the time of the Knights Templars, and now serves as a dwelling-place for dervishes. It is a complete ruin, and I could scarcely believe that it was still habitable. We made no stay at Ramda, a place only remarkable for a convent built, it is said, on the site of Joseph of Arimathea's house. The Syrian convents are built more like fortresses than like peaceful dwellings. They are usually surrounded by strong and lofty walls, furnished with loopholes for cannon. The great gate is kept continually closed, and barred and bolted from within for greater security. A little postern is open to admit visitors, but even this is only done in time of peace, and when there is no fear of the plague. At length, towards noon, we approached the mountains of Judea. Here we must bid farewell to the beautiful, fruitful valley, and to the charming road, and pursue our journey through a stony region which we do not pass without difficulty. At the entrance of the mountain chain lies a miserable village. Near this village is a well, and here we halted to refresh ourselves and water our poor horses. It was not without a great deal of trouble and some expense that we managed to obtain a little water, for all the camels, asses, goats, and sheep from far and wide were collected here, eagerly licking up every drop of the refreshing element they could secure. Little did I think I should ever be glad to quench my thirst with so disgusting a beverage as this muddy, turbid, and lukewarm water they gave me from this well. We once more filled our leathern bottles, and proceeded with fresh courage up the stony path, which quickly became so narrow that without great difficulty and danger we could not pass the camels which we frequently met. Fortunately a few camels out of every herd are generally provided with bells, so that their approach is heard at some distance, and one can prepare for them accordingly. The Bedouins and Arabs generally wear no garment but a shirt barely reaching to the knee. Their head is protected by a linen cloth, to which a thick rope round twice round the head gives a very good effect. A few have a striped jacket over their shirt, and the rich men or chiefs frequently wear turbans. Our road now continues to wind upwards, through ravines between rocks and mountains, and over heaps of stones. Here and there single olive trees are seen sprouting from the rocky clefts. Ugly as this tree is, it still forms a cheerful feature in the desert places where it grows. 
Now and then we climbed hills whence we had a distant view of the sea. These glimpses increase the awe which inspires the traveller when he considers on what ground he is wandering, and whither he is bending his steps. Every step we now take leads us past places of religious importance. Every ruin, every fragment of a fortress or tower, above which the rocky walls rise like terraces, speaks of eventful times long gone by. An uninterrupted ride of five hours over very bad roads, from the entrance of the mountain range, added to the extreme heat and total want of proper refreshment, suddenly brought on such a violent giddiness that I could scarcely keep myself from falling off my horse. Although we had been on horseback for eleven hours since leaving Joppa, I was so much afraid that Mr. B. would consider me weak and ailing, and perhaps change his intention of accompanying me from Jerusalem back to Joppa, that I refrained from acquainting him with the condition in which I felt myself. I therefore dismounted, had I not done so, I should soon have fallen down, and walked with tottering steps beside my horse, until I felt so far recovered that I could mount once more. Mr. B. had determined to perform the distance from Joppa to Jerusalem, a sixteen hours ride at one stretch. He indeed asked me if I could bear so much fatigue, but I was unwilling to abuse his kindness, and therefore assured him that I could manage to ride on for five or six hours longer. Fortunately for my reputation, my companion was soon afterwards attacked with the same symptoms that troubled me so much. He now began to think that it might, after all, be advisable to rest for a few hours in the next village, especially as we could not hope, in any case, to reach the gates of Jerusalem before sundown. I felt silently thankful for this opportune occurrence, and left the question of going on or stopping altogether to the decision of my fellow-traveller, particularly as I knew the course he would choose. Thus I accomplished my object without being obliged to confess my weakness. In pursuance of this resolve, we stayed in the neighboring village of Kariet el Arab, the ancient Emmaus, where the risen Saviour met the disciples, and where we find a ruin of a Christian church in a tolerable state of preservation. The building is now used as a stable. Some years ago this was the haunt of a famous robber, who was shake of the place, and let no frank pass before he had paid whatever tribute he chose to demand. Since the accession of Mehemet Ali, these exactions have ceased, both here and in Jerusalem, where money was demanded of the stranger for admission into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and other sacred places. Even highway robberies, which were once on a time of daily occurrence among these mountains, are now rarely heard of. We took possession of the entrance hall of a mosque, near which a delicious spring sparkled forth from a grotto. Seldom has anything strengthened and refreshed me so much as the water of this spring. I recovered completely from my indisposition, and was able to enjoy the beautiful evening. As soon as the sheikh of the village heard that a party of Franks had arrived, he dispatched four or five dishes of provisions to us. Of all these preparations we could eat only one, the buttermilk. The other dishes, a mixture of honey, cucumbers, hard-boiled eggs, onions, oil, olives, etc., we generously bestowed upon the dragoman and the muker, who caused them quickly to disappear. An hour afterwards the sheikh came in person to pay his respects. We reclined on the steps of the hall, and while the men smoked and drank coffee, a conversation of a very uninteresting kind was kept up, the dragoman acting as interpreter. At length the sheikh seemed seized with the idea that we might possibly be tired with our journey. 
He took his leave, and offered unasked to send us two men as sentries, which he did. Thus we could go to rest in perfect safety under the open sky in the midst of a Turkish village. But before we retired to rest, my companion was seized with the rather original idea that we should pursue our journey at midnight. He asked me, indeed, if I was afraid, but at the same time observed that it would be much safer for us to act upon his suggestion, as no one would suspect our departure by such a dangerous road at midnight. I certainly felt a little afraid, but my pride would not allow me to confess the truth. So our people received the order to be prepared to set out at midnight. Thus we four persons, alone and totally unarmed, travelled at midnight through the wildest and most dangerous regions. Fortunately the bright moon looked smiling down upon us, and illuminated our path so brightly that the horses carried us with firm step over every obstruction. I was, I must confess, grievously frightened by the shadows. I saw living things moving to and fro. Forms gigantic and forms dwarfish seemed sometimes approaching us, sometimes hiding behind masses of rock, or sinking back into nothingness. Lights and shadows, fears and anxiety, thus took alternate possession of my imagination. A couple of miles from our starting place we came upon a brook crossed by a narrow stone bridge. This brook is remarkable only as having been that from which David collected the five stones, wherewith he slew the Philistine giant. At the season of my visit there was no water to be seen. The bed of the stream was completely dry. About an hour's journey from Jerusalem the valley opens, and little orchards give indication of a more fertile country, as well as of the proximity of the holy city. Silently and thoughtfully we approached our destination, straining our eyes to the utmost to pierce the jealous twilight that shrouded the distance from our gaze. From the next hill we hoped to behold our sacred goal, but hope deferred is often the lot of mortals. We had to ascend another height, and another. At last the Mount of Olives lay spread before us, and lastly Jerusalem. End of section 12